2: Oh, damn it. She has these, like, over-the-knee dominatrix boots, and I lost one somehow in the car. Who
0: is that, and what is that?
2: This is Blazing Fire Guardian Goddess, part of a test line that Mattel released in the late 70s. The Guardian Goddesses were not technically, you know, part of the Barbie line, but they were using Barbie bodies. I brought a couple of them. You've seen this where Okay, to let's, activate yeah. her mechanism, you squeeze her thighs together until they click. Yeah. And then to release it, you spread her legs. <laughs> she throws off her clothes.
0: It's I think, So demonic. I don't know what they were like. I really love the— I actually the,
2: love this thing. I mean, I think it's kind of cool. No, and
0: I do. I, the, you know, there is something kind of entrancing about the mechanical dolls.
2: In the late 70s, Mattel added a lot of dolls to their line that had mechanical functions. They were designed by male designers who thought that girls, like boys, preferred action figures. I I kind of love them, and I love all the accoutrements that go with them. Then there's Kissing Barbie from 1978. Kissing Barbie scares me. You press a button on her back, and her neck lurches forward and pushes her puckered lips and face at you. I mean, she's like an elderly female relative at Thanksgiving, <laughs> just suffocating you. In 1980, there was Western Barbie, who had a pointless bit of movement.
0: Oh, my God. Actually, I watched this clip earlier, and it kills me. Have you seen it? Not recently. Oh, my God. Okay. Western
2: Here's the new Western Barbie. When you press her back, she winks.
0: I really love the wink. I think it's kind of fun. When I first got on Barbie, they made her wink. The ugliest Barbie doll we ever did in her life was make
1: her wink. Kids didn't care if she winked or not. Guys cared if she winked. All the money
2: was in the wink. That's former marketing executive Judy Shackelford. She and a group of women executives who were trailblazers entered Mattel about that time to put a stop to this mechanical madness and get Barbie back onto her tiptoed feet.
1: You had working women who were high-level career people managing her. I was the first woman vice president of Mattel, and all of a sudden I was running the Barbie business. All of a sudden she just
0: sort of changed. Barbie and her image really resonated with the culture in the 80s. In 1983, Donna Summer came out with her Working Woman's Anthem, She Works Hard for the Money.
2: It was a time of Reaganism, dynasty, and those ridiculous shoulder pads. Of course, I really love them. I love shoulder pads, I love them because they make my hips look narrower.
0: (laughs) And Barbie herself had a lot of shoulder pad outfits in this era.
2: Partly because of the women's movement and partly because there was a recession, women were streaming into the workforce. In 1955, only around 35% of women worked. But by 1985, it was over half. Here's Judy Shackelford again.
1: We made her a working woman. She was a day to night. All of a sudden, she had many, many more careers.
2: In this episode, as more and more women begin to climb the corporate ladder, Barbie is right there with them.
0: I'm Antonia Cerejido.
2: And I'm M.G. Lord, author of Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. And this is L.A.
0: Made, The Barbie Tapes. Every time we get together, like today, you bring us these incredible wackadoodle dolls and amazing stories about this toy that we all thought we knew so well.
2: Well, you know, with the Greta Gerwig Barbie movie about to debut, I wanted to unearth the tapes I made when I was researching my book. I interviewed dozens of the artists, designers, and executives who created Barbie. And at the outset, I want to acknowledge the work of my colleague, Ella king Tory, who was a consultant on the book and also did some of the interviews.
0: What was going on at Mattel when Judy Shackelford came into the company? As you know,
2: Ruth Handler and her husband Elliot, the founders of Mattel, had left the company in 1975. Arthur Spear was the new head, and he did restore financial stability. But, you know, considering that he was running Mattel, he didn't have a lot of faith in toys. It was his judgment that the future was in electronics and video games which, of course, it kind of was, just not back then. And that turned out to be, at that time, a real losing bet for Mattel.
0: Mm, interesting.
2: By the mid-1980s, the company was on the brink of bankruptcy. It caused a lot of strife within the company, between the divisions, which had been run before almost as a family business by the handlers. I talked about this with Derek Gable, a toy designer.
1: The electronics group is such a huge size so quickly it got completely out of control and everybody in the trenches knew what was going on and they said this is getting nuts they were basically anybody who could say the word electronics was hired for electronics company. And they built this huge building down the street from Mattel which was a grandiose building for electronics and so they were looking at a growth that was going right like there, and then the bubble burst and it went down
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, Ruth Handler, I'm sure, was watching from the sidelines just horrified. Yeah, Ruth didn't mince words. Here
2: she is talking about Mattel's CEO at the time, Arthur Spear.
0: I
1: had
2: Other a dream of turning it into, from what a little I saw, he didn't want it to be a toy company. He wanted it to be a, an electronics company. And he did
1: everything in his power to turn it into something different than
2: a toy company. Well, it was a terrible mistake. Of course. It completely, completely fell on his face. Terrible mistake. He was going to be the big shot,
1: and he, he didn't know how to run it, and he caused severe mistakes.
2: I think the thing that saved Mattel was Barbie. Oh, on the prospectus it's absolutely evident that Barbie was what she And Barbie, Barbie, thank God, lived, and all that
0: other crap, it died. <laughs> I love that she says all that other crap. But was Ruth exaggerating or she's, she's right on this? No, and Mattel had to be bailed out in
2: 1984 by outside investors. Meanwhile, the toy division that Arthur Spear had feared was too volatile to depend upon dependably turned out profits. And Barbie could absolutely be said to have rescued the company.
0: And that was largely thanks to Judy Shackelford, whom we heard from earlier.
2: Judy joined Michelle in 1976 as the marketing director in preschool toys. She was so successful that she was soon promoted to vice president of the Barbie division. And like Ruth Handler, she loved marketing the Barbie doll. I met Judy over lunch at the Hotel Bel Air. I
1: took over the Barbie
2: business because it needed somebody to run it.
1: And once I took it over, I must say I absolutely loved it. It was unbelievable. It's an unbelievable piece of business to work on. Why? I mean, because... She's magical. She's just magical. And you also have a huge amount of volume. I mean, there's dollars there to work with. You can yeah. do meaningful things. You know, it wasn't a little teeny thing struggling with no profit. When you're working on a big brand and there's money to spend,
2: um, you know, you have you have more flexibility. You, you can do things. There's There's a power about it. And Judy was surrounded by a lot of like-minded women.
1: We were a fabulous team. We were just a fabulous team. There was such energy. I mean, you would go into a room in those days, and it was just... Well, also, they're all women, too, which I think is really interesting. And powerful women, and good women, and creative, and and vital, and successful. And, I mean, women have a touch. Women have a touch. It's just a special touch that, that many times really makes a girl's toy...
0: So, who were some of the other powerful women on her team? Well, Charlotte Johnson's protege, Carol
2: Spencer, who was a very important dress designer over the years. And of course, Jill Barad, who went on to become CEO of Mattel. Also, Kitty Black Perkins, an African American clothing designer who was chief designer of fashions and doll concepts for Barbie. And there was Barbara Louie, who was a creative director at Ogilvy & Mather. And she, in fact, created the We Girls Can Do Anything campaign and many follow-ups.
0: It sounds like there was, like, a group of new executives. I'm curious, during Ruth's time, I'm sure there were women, but it seems like there are a lot more. Yeah, Judy Shackelford talked to me about that.
1: There has been a culture at Mattel full of strong, aggressive women... Great place to work for women. Get lots of chances and opportunities and promotions, and they'll give you responsibility. Because, well, since you since you pushed through the barrier, right? I think it is because I pushed through the barrier. But I also think one of the reasons it happened at Mattel. Two reasons. I think the fact that Ruth was there was a great deal of it. But more than that, Mattel's the strongest girls' company in the business. I mean, they have more girls volume than any other toy company.
0: The phrase girls' volume is a good reminder that Barbie is a business, not just a cultural phenomenon. And it sounds as though Judy and her team really meant business.
1: No matter what anybody says about marketers, you can't have that much girl product run by nothing but men. You just can't. You need a balance and you need people working on it who were little girls. I'm not saying you need 100% women, but you but you, but you couldn't do it with 100% men.
2: And one of Judy's first business decisions when she officially became the head of Barbie was to finally diversify not just the Barbie line, but Barbie herself.
1: I thought we should have a black and Hispanic Barbie. We had a, a black friend of Barbie. Barbie, sort of, if she's an icon, why can't she be a black icon too? Why can't she be the same thing to a little black girl, which is a symbol of everything she would like to become or be? The fact that she's black and she's Hispanic, I thought was an important thing to do. In
2: 1980, finally, the dream girl herself was black and also Latina. And I think. Realizing there would be all sorts of public scrutiny focused on the launch of this black Barbie, that they were very, very sensitive about its design. The first black Barbie was designed by Kitty Black Perkins, who said she wanted to give the doll her own personality and look, separate from the original Barbie.
0: The first black Barbie is, I think, the most beautiful Barbie. She's stunning. Yeah, she was, has an afro. Yeah, exactly. She's incredible. She
2: had, the first black Barbie did not just have the face of the vapid Malibu Barbie. The features reflected the actual ethnicity of the doll. And she had short hair that also accurately reflected
0: the texture of black hair. Yeah, she has natural hair. And she yeah. just has, I mean, her all of the outfits that I see here are fabulous. This beautiful red dress with like a golden necklace. This really nice like white that almost looks like an earth, wind, and fire outfit. I love her.
2: I never really thought of her in the context of earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> Antonia, you're opening my eyes again.
0: <laughs> I love earth, wind, and fire. I've seen them live.
2: I, I am dazzled. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I go with my parents. It's oh. very cute.
2: They're probably my generation. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> <laughs> but also in the same year, there was a Hispanic Barbie, which was a little bit more problematic.
0: Well yeah that's I that's interesting to me cuz I definitely did not have a Hispanic Barbie growing up. I don't believe that. I think you had Teresa and
2: you're just repressing that memory. That I repress the memory?
0: That's so funny. I actually sent this screenshot of your and my text about how you said that I was blocking the memory of having a Latina Barbie <laughs> to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was like, no, you definitely did not have that Barbie. Because <laughs> she, my parents didn't buy me a Barbie. My parents were the kind of parents who were like, hopefully she'll play with, like, abstract blocks and gender is a construct, you know. They were, like, even beyond this conversation of representation. <laughs> But I think part of the reason why I probably didn't have a Hispanic Barbie is because she was so weird. Can you tell me tell me about her? <laughs> she was pretty
2: awful. She had like this three-tiered skirt and a peasant blouse and like this mantilla or something. And, you know, Mattel, Mattel is in Los Angeles and there must have been a lot of Latino, Latinx workers there, you know. But they were like, never mind that. <laughs> well, it, it was a A weird kind of
0: othering. She was like the cousin of the Frito Bandito or something?
2: In contrast to the Black Barbie, which was beautiful doll with details that were well thought out. Right. Well, that's that's a huge bummer. Well, you know, I mean, things would get better over time.
0: Yeah, or not. I mean, the reason you and I met was because I did a story about the Frida Kahlo Barbie, and she was like, "Do you know the term yassified? No, but you can (laughs) explain it to me. You know Facetune? Yeah. Okay, so it's like when they've Facetuned something. But basically, they took Frida Kahlo, who famously, like, didn't wear makeup and had a unibrow and a mustache and would wear this, you know, was very counterculture. And they made her look like she went to Sephora for an afternoon and someone did her face up. And it was just very disturbing. So I will say Mattel's track record on on Latina dolls still really threw the floor.
2: I sort of thought she was
0: attractive in that. (laughs)
2: I guess I have a vulnerable spot for yassification, and I definitely know a new word.
0: This change to make Barbie herself Black and Hispanic in the context of Barbie's history would ultimately be seen as somewhat like a modest effort to address these very serious complaints that Barbie promoted a white, exclusionary, and impossible beauty standard. Yeah, given it would
2: take nearly 40 more years for two really important redesigns to happen. In 2016, Mattel gave Barbie a much larger variety of body shapes, including curvy and petite, And in 2020, they introduced a much larger variety of skin tones and hair textures. They also brought out more differently abled dolls.
0: What Barbie did do in the 1980s was embrace a new idea of empowerment for little girls. When we come back,
2: we girls can do anything.
0: I'm LA's senior education reporter Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized or that do not have access Are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday, you got to celebrate the day your mama left. And I make space for students to tell their own stories.
2: LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. In 1985, Barbie's advertising began to revolve around a new slogan, We Girls Can Do Anything. Let's listen to the first commercial in that series, a moving commercial which begins with a working mom arriving home and handing her daughter her briefcase.
1: You know it and so with your little girl.
2: We Girl!
0: Okay, I have to admit something embarrassing, which is that I watched this commercial prior to us coming and recording today, and I totally got choked up.
2: (laughs) Well, I think it's really sweet. I think it's very tender.
0: You know, I'm cynical to my core, but, you know, there's something pretty moving about thinking of little girls imagining that they can be anything. The lies we consumed. MG, this was a campaign written by an advertising executive that you mentioned earlier named Barbara Louie. They
1: wanted to express that expansion of the woman's world, and we girls could do anything, Was putting that together in a way that was as affirmative as I could do, and if, and if you really want to get down to the most basic aspects of how it came out of me, it was something my mother always said to me. She always said it. You can do with anything. I so mean, I'm very proud of it, because I think it's a very pro social and a very uh, real statement for little girls that the girls of that period could take
0: with them their adulthood. We girls can do anything was a slogan that wasn't just used for Barbie's many career options. It was also for the fun stuff. Since it was the '80s, of course, there was an aerobics option.
2: This is hot stuff, Skipper. Sold we girls. They were even aspirational about their free time.
0: There's even a We Girls Can Do Anything, tropical, pool, and patio. Like in the movie, you know that Ken, there's like a whole part where Ken says that he's not a lifeguard. His job is beach. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like in the 80s, girls were learning their job was patio. We girls
2: love to swim all day. Right, Barbie? Tropical pool and patio.
0: I don't know why the patio really gets me. <laughs> Every girl's dream to have a pool and patio.
2: The adult version at the time of Girls Can Do Anything was Women Can Have It All. In 1982, Helen Gurley Brown published Having It All Love, Success, Sex, Money, even if you're starting with nothing. Women were seeking more autonomous lifestyles and they were clomping into the workplace. Did
0: women really believe in the 80s that they could have it all?
2: <laughs> this one didn't. You know, in the larger popular culture, women were clomping, clomping <laughs> in their Reebok aerobic shoes. I remember in New York, women were wearing their little suits and they were walking to work in their Reebok aerobic shoes. Melanie Griffith in Working Girl does that. Exactly. Well, people really did that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched them. Women executives became much more commonplace. And in general, the whole idea of working, I mean, it wasn't spurned as it was in the late 60s and 70s as working for the man. It was working, you know. and for yourself. Yeah. And the, the idea of having power and influence in a corporate situation was a good thing. In movies, the tag phrase for Oliver Stone's Wall Street was greed is good and greed was good for women, too. <laughs> right, exactly. And no Barbie was more emblematic of the ideal working woman than day-to-night Barbie. Here's day tonight
1: Barbie. Day-to-night canceled separately.
2: Sweet. Just to sort of contextualize it, while all of these things were going on in the business world, over there in the ivory tower, gender theorists in the late 80s and 90s like Judith Butler were coming up with a theory that I think is is very widely accepted today, but but was actually something debated. And it's the idea that gender isn't necessarily an essentialist thing, but rather it's a socially constructed thing. It's the idea that gender is a performed identity. You perform femininity. You perform masculinity. This was, I think this was the message of the 1980s. I mean, we're all performing a role and by day, you can be a little more on, on the side of performing masculinity. But by night, you've got to fem it up. Barbie could be a high-profile executive who was not uncomfortable with her femininity, but don't call her a feminist. Here's Judy again. Now,
1: take a look at the total Barbie line during any one of those years. She wasn't suddenly a feminist, and she wasn't suddenly a career person. Right. One of her segments might reflect that, okay, the fact that she worked. But she still did things like go to a party. Right. Or you had one that was about a birthday, or you had one that was about lifestyle, like working out. Right. You see, so, you know, there was never an intention to turn her into, you know, a doll line with seven different kinds of careers, and you're going to pick the careers. Right. It was just that what she suddenly did was she worked too. And when she did work, she worked glamorously. We had always felt glamour is Barbie's essence. Yeah. And no matter what Barbie does, Barbie really doesn't go glamorously. So, I mean, they wouldn't have her collect the garbage. Do you define yourself as a feminist? Me? All right, isn't that funny? That's a hard question for me. I don't want to say I do, but I'd really hate to say I'm not. Well, that sounds like the answer a lot of people, gave. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I mean, I don't think... Any of us are hardcore feminists Most of the people I know at Mattel, the women I know, consider themselves capable. They want to believe they got their job not because they're women, but because they're who they are. And they think they're capable and competent and do all those things. And I think they are advocates of women's rights. They want a fair shake. But um, I don't think anybody's exactly a, uh, you know, carrying signs in Washington type of people. They're all too busy doing their job.
2: The distancing from the stigmatized idea of a, quote, feminist, unquote, suggests that it's a caricature of a man-hating feminist in Birkenstocks from 1968 or something. I kind of find those people highly inspiring. But in the corporate world, maybe that didn't play.
0: And in Forever Barbie, you also say that the word feminist isn't quite right for Ruth Handler, Barbie's creator.
2: Ruth Handler absolutely distanced herself from the word feminist Let's remember that Barbie took a lot of flack in the early 70s from feminist groups who protested against her. They leafleted against Mattel at the toy fair. There were chants of, I'm not a Barbie doll, at equal rights rallies. I'd guess that the term feminist was as welcome at Mattel as the term Barbie doll was at feminist gatherings.
0: The word feminist has been demonized for decades. It's still a fraught term. It means different things to different people. There was a Pew Research study as recently as 2020 that found that 80% of Americans support gender equality, but only 61% of women call themselves feminists and only 40% of men. So Ruth Handler, feminist or not, what did she do after leaving Mattel?
2: Well, Ruth tried to retire, but it didn't stick. I mean, she was a brilliant marketer and she saw a need that she could build a second career around. She founded a company called Nearly Me, which made a more lifelike breast prosthesis for women who, like Ruth, had had a mastectomy.
0: Ruth had been forced out in the 70s, but by the time you had published your book in the early 90s, Ruth had already been pretty much fully rehabilitated within Mattel.
2: Ruth was hugely popular at the collector conventions, signing autographs. And I think it's because of this rehabilitation that she welcomed me into her home and talked to me about the course of her life. I'm glad I got to know her in the early 1990s. She died in 2002.
0: But as Tom Kalinske told her, Barbie would outlive her, and Barbie's going to probably outlive you and me. MG, you published your book in the early 90s right after the most popular Barbie ever, still to this day, came out.
2: You've got the longest hair ever. Totally hot, totally cool, totally hair Barbie. Comb it out, add some depth.
0: Totally Hair Barbie
2: doll has blonde or brunette hair down to her toes and comes with depth styling gel. Dolls each sold separately. Anyone who saw the Adams Family in the 60s will know that she looked like Cousin It in the Adams <laughs>
0: Family. I can't get what Derek Gable said out of, out of my head where he said, you know, we did all these different things, but ultimately the girls just, like, wanted hair play. They yeah. just, more and more hair, to, to the point that her <laughs> hair reached her toes. It's really funny.
2: Well, that's why she had to stand up on her toes to, like— <laughs> to not walk so on, on her hair. To not walk on her hair.
0: MG, I think it's appropriate that we're ending on Totally Hair Barbie because she's just such a blast, you know? <laughs> And I think that the thing that I really appreciated when I read your book the first time, and I think has sort of, like, infiltrated, like, the general conversation around Barbie, is that you took her both seriously as an important icon to understand women and how gender is a construct and all these complicated ideas. You took the time to, like, treat her the way a historian would treat something like the Constitution or something, but... Throughout the whole book, you're also having a ton of fun and cracking jokes, and I think that that is, like, the joy of Barbie is that if you take Barbie too seriously, you've lost the plot, as the kids say. Like, humor is a critical part of understanding Barbie, and I also think that that joy is what people are really responding to with the movie.
2: She's not just funny, she's campy. It's a special kind of funny, an idea that Susan Sontag codified in her famous essay and Notes on Camp. Basically, Barbie is a campy artifact. The movie is campy. You know, it speaks to irony around ideas.
0: You know, I think the movie is so clever. And in their advertising, they say, if you love Barbie, this movie is for you. And if you hate Barbie, this is for you. And I feel like people love to hate her as much as they love to love her. And that's why both your generation and my generation and every generation before and in between is so excited about the Barbie movie. And so to me, there was this missing piece sort of in this story, which is like how are younger generations responding to Barbie? And we really, we hit the streets. We went out in the field. Absolutely. We've been
2: sitting here yakking, but this time we really went out to the youthful experts.
0: And so you and I, MG, we went to Santa Monica to go to World of Barbie, which is an installation that Mattel had licensed where mostly little girls, that's who we saw there, were running around Barbie's closet, her camper. You can take photos in these giant boxes, like you're a doll, we did that, we took some photos. We looked fabulous. Oh, wait, you're awesome. Thank you. Wow, here we are. We met these girls right outside of World of Barbie. They were there for a birthday party. This is Hailey Gilmore with her friends. How old are you? Turnington? Happy birthday. Thank you. What made you want to come for your birthday? Them. <laughs> Them? Because all of you wanted to go to Barbie? Yeah. yeah. What about Barbie do you like? What's your favorite thing about her?
2: She's like a grown up but a kid. And she like likes to help other people. And I like doing
0: that too. Cool. And, and yeah. Ken? Yeah. What do you think about Ken? He's cute. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: that Ken cute. <laughs> Ken? Um. He's handsome. Well, he's taking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, he's taking. I taken. wish there was a
2: real person Ken I can just go on a date with him. Like, like, <laughs> Well, when I think about he's Ken, it's only portable. He's only twelve inches. <laughs> I can beat. I can. Be Ken stronger. is like, Ken is like nice, but he's also
0: weird. He <laughs> and he's like, like strange. I love that you kept asking all the little girls about Ken. You know, M.G., one of the questions we set out to answer in this podcast series was, why is Barbie still such a hugely popular doll, truly an icon, more than 60 years after being introduced? And I think after listening to those little girls at Barbie World, I kind of get it. They were talking about their dolls
2: just the way Ruth Handler predicted that they would. Here's how she described her original concept for Barbie. I think Barbie was great because Barbie could be anything a child wanted her to be. Mm -hmm. And there is no way that I can say what single thing contributed. It was a combination of good marketing, good design, and filling a consumer need Mm -hmm. that was very much needed. Giving the child a prop for projecting herself.
0: Isn't that what we heard those kids doing? They're really projecting their own narrative onto the dolls.
2: I might add, you know, the same thing goes for the people who really hate Barbie. Barbie, essentially, is a Rorschach test, and adults and kids see whatever they want, project whatever they want onto that piece of plastic.
0: That's, like, the beautiful thing of Barbie, is just, like, as long as there are kids with imaginations that can project their ideas, I mean, she's always going to be relevant.
2: Barbie can be anything except obsolete.
0: L.A. Made the Barbie Tapes is hosted by me, Antonia Serejida.
2: And me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of L.A.'s studios...
0: Shayna Naomi Krockmull is our vice president of podcasts. Catherine Milhouse is the director of content development.
2: Our producer is Minju Park.
0: Shelley Lewis is our
2: writer and editor. Fact-checking on this episode by Sarah Bernat.
0: This episode was
2: sound designed by Minju Park. He's Scott Kelly is our mix engineer.
0: Jens Campbell is our production coordinator.
2: Sarah Bernan and Allie Bianco are our interns.
0: Our website, eleas.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios.
2: The marketing team at LAS Studios created our branding.
0: LA Made the Barbie Tapes is a production of Elias Studios.
1: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation
2: for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.
0: As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water.
2: I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley.
0: How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.